Welcome back, guys, to yet another episode of the Soccer Kaki's podcast. Um, today we'll be talking about some EPL news and uh, EPL thoughts um, after the midweek matches. We're currently recording this, you know, on the fourth of December, my time, third of December, Jack's time, I suppose. So um, it's EPL weekend action. So we might not be covering these matches per se. But we are definitely going to be covering the midweek matches uh, this week. Specifically, United-Arsenal. Right? United emerged uh, victorious in a 3-2 battle against uh, the Gunners. Lots of things have happened in the past few weeks. Um, specifically, United have appointed a new interim head coach, uh, Ralph Ragnick. If I'm pronouncing his name correctly, Jack, I have no idea. Um, I should get used to pronouncing Ralph's name. Uh, after all, he is going to be our new... Um, well, he's our new interim head coach, but I think he's going to be director of football. Or going to have a permanent position in some other capacity or area once he finishes uh, his interim tenure and once we are able to find a more permanent manager. Um, so, talking about Ralph is something that we're going to discuss, I suppose. But... You know, we also want to talk about one Pierre Emerick Aubameyang who has not lived up to his role as both club captain and uh, leading forward for Arsenal. Um, one question I'd like to ask him is, where are the goals, my friend? Where are the goals? So, without further ado, right, let's dive straight into this uh, topic. And uh, if you have time, we might talk a bit about the Merseyside RB that happened over the years. Well. I will make sure right. that we do not have time to talk about that miserable <laughs> game. <laughs> Alright, okay, cool. So I guess to start things off, Jack, how do you feel about this new look United? Uh, or rather post-Ole United? What's different? What's changed? And what do you think are still issues that remain? Well, I was about to say nothing particularly changed before the Arsenal game. <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, Michael Carrick definitely did a good job. Yeah. He got the win against Villarreal that basically sent him to the round of 16. He had a fairly respectable draw against Chelsea that maybe could have been a win if that penalty didn't stand. And he had... A... The Arsenal game was probably the most interesting of the three, considering the circumstances of it. How United fought back from being down twice. Yeah. Yep. And... Um, or rather being down once and then Arsenal equalized. But it, the Arsenal game definitely showed a lot of positives. At least not necessarily the beginning of the game, but how they grew into it. And yeah. I think Carrick is going to ride off into the sunset and do whatever the heck Michael Carrick does for free time. Knowing that he sort of steadied the ship and allowed Ranić to inherit a very interesting team. And oh, I mean, my I... first question, my first question for you, just ancillarily to get the elephant in the room out of the way: Did you watch the game, or did you watch any of the highlights of the game? I watched highlights of the game. Uh, it was four a.m. in the morning for me. I wasn't able to. True. Uh, we... <laughs> yeah. So, did I you did you think just as a quick question, so we can get this topic out of the way? Did you think Emil Smith Rowe, Emil Smith Rowe's goal should have stood? That's the thing, right? The fan in me wants to say yes, uh, wants to say no, but if Fred. It was the reason why De Gea got injured, you know, technically speaking. Um, it should stand. I mean, I don't think the fact... Okay, so let me re-clarify this to, to make it sound a bit more coherent. 
Um, based on the rule book, it should have stood, right? But if Arsenal had any sort of uh, ethics and morals and uh, you know sportsmanship, they knew for a fact that uh, they should have kicked the ball out of play. See, that's where I completely disagree with you. Why? It's not a head injury. It's not a major injury. He got up and played the rest of the game. Why should they kick the ball out of play? True, but he was down. So? He was fine. Man's injured. Man's, <laughs> he was man's fine. Impact injuries. <laughs> That's still the, injury bedrock, that the bedrock of this whole discussion, I think. Like, he was fine. Yeah. I mean, he, he got I, stopped I, I, on. Yes, that hurts. That's Fred's fault, but. Yeah, that's the problem, Arsenal right? If it was right an Arsenal, if it was an Arsenal if... player, that would have been a different thing altogether. But since this is a United player, right? It yeah, sort I mean, of complicates was... the whole issue. Yeah, I mean, if it was an Arsenal player, it would have been a foul and the goal yeah, would exactly. have not stood by the rules. Since it was a United player, right? Yeah, I think the problem, it sort of complicates the issue even more. I mean, if you see the opponent goalkeeper hurting, right? And if the referee's not stopping play, you should take your chances. I'll, I'll admit to that, you know. Because at the end of the day, right, it's not... It's up to the team's discretion whether they want to uh, kick the ball out of play. I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, it's just that I do feel that if in in certain conditions where... But here's the other issue as well, right? They, they check VAR. They check VAR and instead they still allow the goal to go through. So that also complicates things as well because, you know, it, it sort of illustrates the fact that uh, the hair should have just got up. But then again, it was an impact injury. You, you, I don't think people can deny that, you know, in the moment it hurt probably pretty bad and he was actually genuinely hurting. Um, do you, I mean, you, you see where I'm coming from, right? It's not sort of a black and white kind of thing. It's a... Uh, sort of. Let me, let me make one first, like, initial point. Okay, sure. Because uh, everyone's calling Arsenal cheaters and, you know, cheaters never no, win I don't know. and all I don't, that. I don't, I don't, yes, I don't, I don't think Emil Smith-Rowe saw that he was down until he was near the end of the lineup of your shot. And at that point, you're not going to kick the ball out of play. Because he was sort of coming at it at a weird angle. He was sort of turning his body. And by the time he noticed David De Gea was down, he was in the mid-wind-up of the shot. And his immediate thought was, okay, thank you. And if VAR was going to rule that out for a foul on the goalkeeper, that's not Emil Smith-Rowe's problem. But what I think ended up happening, <laughs> this is going to seem like I'm just disparaging David De Gea, but what I think ended up happening was David De Gea got stomped on, didn't know who stomped on him, yeah, and stayed down thinking, okay, I'm going to get a foul. And then he noticed it was Fred, and he knew he wasn't going to get the foul. So he was going to really stay down, and really milk it and hope the referee sees it before anything happens and stop the play and get a drop ball. And neither of those things happened. <laughs> and Emil Smith yeah, scores true. a free goal. And then VAR reviews it and VAR cannot overturn it because by the letter of the law, it is a goal. Ethic, yeah, ethically, whatever you want to say about it, it's a goal. It's a goal. They can't uh, yeah, overturn the goal. <laughs> I don't and... think I'm not cheaters, but I do think that it's a very complicated situation. It's an interesting situation for sure. It's a good case study for you know future debates and discussions to sort of illustrate that you know if your teammate sort of you know causes you to get injured, you know that's not going to stop the referee from stopping play unless it's a hit injury. 
Yeah, like if it's a head injury, if if, if Fred broke David De Gea's leg, <laughs> then this is just a completely different wild discussion. Yeah, like he, he just injury. stepped yeah. on he stepped on his leg and stepped on his toe. That hurts, but you're able to play through that. That's not Arsenal's fault. That is not Arsenal's fault. Yeah. You know whose fault it should be, and this this is one issue I think United still need to address. The defense. Why didn't they close down Emil Smith-Rowe? Emil Smith-Rowe, sorry. See, I thought their defense was better, except on set pieces. And that's where Arsenal had their most threatening chances. Like, before Smith-Rowe's goal, there was a header from, I think it was Ben White, that basically had to be cleared off the line by Marcus Rashford. There were multiple... I don't know. Um, there were multiple instances in the second half where Arsenal had uh, corners or set pieces that United didn't deal well with mm. and I think that was a major issue that a team better than Arsenal is probably going to capitalize on but I thought United's defense was better as the game went on though admittedly Arsenal made it very easy for them at times I thought their defense was better as the game went on, and I thought their press was better as the game went on. And I think, especially that second point, is going to be a very big positive with Ralph Rangnick coming into the job, being, you know, the godfather of the Gagan press. I'm trying to think, man. I'm trying to think what exactly would Ralph bring to the table besides, you know, the new tactical system. Is he, going to, is he going to rough managerial experience? I, I mean, yes, bro. Those are very important points. I'm not doubting that, but is he going to ruffle any feathers that's going to potentially uh, disrupt? Any See, particular? Yeah. Potentially. I think that's the thing that people were talking a lot about when this was announced because Rangnick's a manager that has a set system and a set style, the, the Gagan Press, the thing that he created that he wants to play in and he requires his players to buy into that you have to be you know completely bought in you have to work within the system you have to sacrifice within the system and people were questioning how well that would work people were questioning would he be able to convince cristiano ronaldo to press which Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was unable to do and united as a team didn't look like a team that was very efficient at pressing at any point in the season and they never did against arsenal but they looked like a team that could become very efficient at pressing. And they looked like a team that, if they're sort of fine-tuned, they can figure it out. Even Ronaldo. There was an instance in the second half when Ronaldo was... I think there was a pass from the left back to the center back, and Ronaldo was chasing down the center back. And it was maybe the first time in ages I've seen Cristiano Ronaldo press. And he dang near won the ball. And that would have been a goal. Mm. And the fact that Ronaldo's willing to do that lung-busting run when he's 35, even though he's in impeccable Greek god shape in like the 70th minute or whenever it was, sort of shows that, okay, maybe Ranjit can get these guys to buy in. Yeah. Maybe this task isn't as steep as people thought it was when Ranjit first got the job. Now, you know, the consultancy thing, getting people behind the scenes to listen to him, that's a completely different story, but yeah. maybe on the pitch, this has potential. The other thing, though, that uh, you know, I've been reading about is that he's probably going to go out with a 
So I don't know whether this is true, and I part of me, you know, likes the idea of it, but part of me was also worried to a certain extent. But this idea that he might be building you know, Ronaldo and Cavani up front, you know, it's a tantalizing prospect to have both of them play as forwards. But one thing that I sort of am worried about is the development of Mason Greenwood. Well, that was going out the window when you signed Ronaldo. <laughs> yeah, no, true, true, I mean, true. I, I see your point. I definitely do. Yeah. But I think if I can console you in any way and give you some positives about that, the fact that you're getting someone who thinks in the long term and who's contracted, whether he's manager or not, he's contracted into this role for two and a half years. Yeah. You're getting someone who ran the Red Bull football system, which has churned out superstar after superstar for the last decade and a half. He was the man who coached Red Bull Leipzig into the Bundesliga. So yeah, I think he, he's able to he's able to operate with the long term in mind. So maybe but, in the immediate short term, having to play Ronaldo and Cavani up front in some instances might happen. But I don't think this is him completely dismissing the idea of Mason Greenwood. I think having someone like Ryan can charge is the best thing that could happen for not only players like Mason Greenwood, but for players like Honorable Mejri, um, Brandon Williams, wherever the heck he's loaned out to, and some of the other younger players in the United system, because you have someone who's not only experienced in youth development and in the sporting development of the Red Bull system, you have someone who's not just thinking in the short term, like Ole has been for the last three years. For sure, but I think the, the big problem here is that United, I thought, I mean, United sort of do need to rebuild themselves, and that's going to take time because. I mean, you talk about a Red Bull system per se, but, you know, Ralph, correct me if I'm wrong if that's the case, but there was already a system in place before he came about and sort of augmented it. What kind of system is that United with regards to long-term development? We've talked about this in previous podcasts before. I've been a big proponent of, you know, promoting our academy kids. Finally, we have someone who's probably, you know, interested in promoting them and turning them into real superstars per se. Per se. But I don't think the structure's the same. I don't think... You know, the system is anywhere close to the level of the Ripple system per se because there hasn't been that focus on internal development. There hasn't been that focus on long-term planning and vision. Yeah, sure, there has been long-term planning and uh, vision done by Ed Woodward, but you've seen where that's gotten us. My point is, right, <laughs> I think him coming in, he needs to do some groundwork first and we need to give him time. The problem is, you know, at a club like United, you're not a lot of time. Sorry, I'm just, Google, I'm just Googling a point. <laughs> Sorry. Please, please, please do, please do. So, I, I, yeah. Hold on. So, am I right in that he... So, to your point about Ranić not ne- not necessarily being the architect of the Red Bull system, he was the architect of the Red Bull system. Oh, that's because good. Then. Okay, I, that's good. That's good. I I had in my mind a different date about when he joined the Red Bull system. He joined in 2012. Yeah. Okay. And then he started. The he Bundesliga, um, the Bundesliga team, <laughs> Red Bull Leipzig, was in the Regionalliga, which I believe is the fourth, fourth, fourth or fifth division yeah. in Germany. <laughs> yeah. 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 In 2012, and he became coach of RB Leipzig in 2015. I have no idea where Rebel Salzburg were in 2012, but he was given the reins to the project when the project was in its infancy. And he built 
the perennially second place team until Jesse Marsh came and screwed it all up. But <laughs> Jesse Marsh might get fired too. That's it. That's interesting. But um, oh no, man! He definitely has the capabilities to construct that long-term system, especially when there's already youth talent already at Manchester United. But I think the key to look at over the next two years is if is if he's actually going to be given. Well, firstly, is is he going to become the permanent manager? Which initially I thought the answer was already a hard no, that he came into it thinking, okay, I'm fine with not being the permanent manager. But there's sort of been some discussions and some talk about maybe he wants to be the permanent manager. Maybe he's going to get the permanent manager job after six months if he does well. Maybe this consultancy thing he's going to do along with being coaching or whatever. But the second main question is, if he goes into that consultancy role, are people actually going to listen to him? And is he going to be given the keys to the car, so to speak? And if he is, I think that has very, very interesting prospects for Manchester United because you're finally getting someone who knows what the hell they're doing to be in charge of the long-term planning of the club. I mean, with all due respect to Darren Fletcher, I'm sure he's a very smart person, but he doesn't have the experience that Ralph Rangnick is. And with all due respect to Ed Woodward, I'm sure he's a less than suspicious character, but he has no idea what he's doing. <laughs> I was yeah, okay, I'm sure right. he's a nice person, but he's an, exec- he's an executive in a broker-dealer <laughs> firm. <laughs> I'm not really comfortable saying that. But... I know I know you're going to crucify me for saying this, right? But I get a lot of Sir Alex Ferguson vibes from the brother, only because he, he's a bit of a control freak as well. He wants everything to be done in a particular way. He wants to be sort of having a hand in every aspect of the club and so Alex to whether you want to agree or disagree with that you 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 have to admit that he was heavily involved in the club in multiple aspects whether it was youth development whether it was transfers whether it was tactics I mean he was an all-rounded manager he wasn't just solely focusing on one thing per se yeah and Ralph's I think they're, like sort, of, they're so. sort of different they're sort of different sides of the same coin because they're yeah. two they're products of two different generations of football because you're right, Sir Alex Ferguson was in charge of everything at Manchester United. And yeah. part of this, I'm not even going to say struggle the latter years of Sir Alex Ferguson, because they won multiple league titles in the latter years of Sir Alex Ferguson. They did, they did. Yeah. The reason why they weren't able to push on from getting to two Champions League finals, or three Champions League finals and winning one of them in the mid, or in the late 2000s, early 2010s, is largely because the Glazers came in and put a lot more constraints on the financial ability. Yeah. of the club and the amount of what Sir Alex Ferguson could do. But he's very much of the old managerial style where you are the manager and you have control of everything, the purview of the entire club. Whereas Ralph Rangnick is on the same coin. He has control of the purview of everything that the club does, but he's very much the more modern sporting director person. So yeah. they are yeah. very similar. They're also both a little bit of a cult of personality around him because they're both very strong personalities. They're both, both very type A people. So you're not necessarily <laughs> yeah. wrong in saying the you're not you're definitely not wrong in saying that there are sort of similarities between the two. But you know they're of different generations, but they have a lot of very similar characteristics about them. No, for sure. I, I do think that one thing that deserves attention in this uh session, because we probably have to wrap it up in a bit, but um is one player that's not from Manchester United, but featured in that game, and that's Pierre Emerick Bomea. So, uh, to sort of wrap up the thing on United is uh, it'll be interesting to see how Ralph does in his first game um, this weekend, I believe. 
against the uh, who did who are we playing, Jack? I don't know, man. I've been so busy that I haven't kept track. You're relying on me. To I believe your it's team, Crystal huh? Palace. It is it's, it's, Crystal Palace. It's Crystal Palace. Ah, yes. See, I'm not a bad fan. All right, not a bad fan. Crystal Palace are an interesting to, to for him to face against. Though. The uh, it's not the hardest team to come up, but we've we've never done well in Crystal Palace. You know, they're sort of like a bogey team in uh, recent uh, years. But no, let's talk about Aubameyang man, before we wrap up our EPL segment for today. Okay, I'll start. He was awful. <laughs> Absolutely awful. Okay. <laughs> I mean, what's up? What's up with him? I mean, you can go for the simple explanation and say that he's just the most recent Arsenal player to get a massive pay rise and sort of bugger off. <laughs> Decide, <laughs> you know, this, I'm, I'm good now. I'm not going to try anymore. I got my big payday. But I just don't think he's the right striker for Arsenal. I think if they're going to stick with this 4-4-2, which I don't think necessarily worked all that well against Manchester United, mainly because yeah. Arsenal couldn't retain the ball, which you can possibly pin on personnel issues rather than the formation. Like, I think Grand Jaka would do a much better job at retaining the ball than Mohamed El Neni did in that midfield. But also, when they moved into attacking areas and they had Martin Odegaard dropping into deeper positions to try and get the ball, that wasn't necessarily working because United's midfield was able to effectively press the ball off of off of Arsenal's midfield. Yeah. But they couldn't sort of play it long for a striker to knock down into Odegaard because Aubameyang's just not that kind of striker. And he's yeah, you're not, slowly, you're but, you're and he's, I guess, rap, rather quickly become a player that if he's not putting the ball in the back of the net, he's having very little, if any, impact on the game. And he's really not putting the ball in the back of the net recently. No, you're not, you're not wrong with like this, damn the, the question then becomes, right? The question then becomes, who then should be the striker for Arsenal? I think that's an Who interesting discussion because I don't think they have that player at their club. Especially yeah. if Lacazette chooses to not sign a new contract. Which it just it, it sure is looking like he's not going to. Yeah. I think I've said a lot. I have a friend who's an Arsenal fan who we talk about the miseries of our clubs a lot. I've said a lot that Arsenal are a midfield that Arsenal are of Granit Xhaka replacement away from being a very interesting team. And that player could have been uh, Matteo Guendouzi, but that ship sailed. I think they need a striker desperately. They need like a true lone number nine desperately. I texted you after that game that Arsenal need to, you know, search under every couch cushion and pull as much money, as much money and as much change together that they can find in order to buy Alexander Isak from Yeah. Or that. Yeah, would that would be a good signing. They need, you know, that level of player up top. And Aubameyang's just not going to offer you that. And even if they bought a striker, I don't really see a convincing reason to play Aubameyang over Smith Rowe or over Bukayo Saka or a player like that. He's become not even going to say a Mezzodoza level liability because it's sort of weird because Aubameyang's also the club captain. <laughs> yeah, that's right, right? So that's the added sort of wrinkle to it. I mean, I remember um, this morning on TalkSport, Martin, uh, Martin Keong. I believe that's mm-hmm. his name. 
was on there talking and criticizing Arteta for bringing off Aubameyang for Eddie Nketiah, which I don't think Eddie Nketiah is that good. It sure shows the lack of confidence that Arsenal have. But he's saying, oh, Aubameyang's a world-class player. You can't take off world-class players when you need goals. But at the same time, what was Aubameyang doing? Like, he didn't yeah, no. actually... He, he was... If you're not a net positive as a number nine, you're basically a net negative. So if you're not doing anything that helps the team and build up, that helps the team in retaining possession, and you're also not putting the ball in the back of the net, then you're actively hurting your team. And Aubameyang was actively hurting his team against Manchester United at times. And we're getting to the point where once one of the best players in the Premier League is becoming a liability for his team, and Arsenal have seemingly outgrown the player that they're so desperate to keep. The question then becomes, though, um, which we still okay. Besides Alexander Isaac, so he partially answered my question. Who else do they go for during the transfer window if they can't get Isaac? Because let's be real here. Would Isaac give up his, you know, pretty good life at Real Sociedad for a club like Arsenal? I don't think so. Uh, probably responsibly. not. Yeah, I, so... I think it would be a discussion. But I think it might be a little more difficult for Arsenal to convince, especially if Real Sociedad make the Champions League next year, especially if, say, Real Madrid potentially come calling in two years. Then I think it becomes a much more difficult discussion. And when it comes to finding a player that is going to directly help them, I think Everton currently have a striker that might greatly benefit playing in a better team. And Arsenal fans have claimed for six months for some strange reason that he's a boyhood Arsenal fan, even though that's just factually not true. And yeah, I I would be very shocked if Arsenal didn't make a concrete bid for Dominic Calvert-Lewin in the summer, especially if Everton's season continues on the the trajectory that it's going down. I think they'll be one of the first teams in line to try and sign Calvert-Lewin. Interesting. I didn't realize that they were going after the bugger. Yeah, they... Had some, they sent out some feelers last summer, and Everton didn't budge. They sent out some feelers after Ancelotti left, trying to like capitalize on the uncertainty that was facing Everton, and Everton didn't budge. And now that more uncertainty is facing Everton, <laughs> and the financial issues are not going away, then they might be more convinced to sell him in the summer, and maybe not at the price that they would have asked for last summer. So I think Calvert Lewin's definitely an option. I think you know who would be an interesting option for Arsenal, in my opinion, Emmanuel Dennis. Uh, <laughs> temporary short term fix. He's not. It's not I bad. like Emmanuel Dennis. I think yeah. he's a good player. He plays. He plays with a lot of audacity about him. I don't think he's number nine. And Arsenal have plenty of players at that team that aren't number nines. They're constantly trying to make number nines. Or players who aren't in positions that they're constantly trying to play that position in. Like, Emil Smith-Rowe is not number 10. They tried to make him number 10 for, like, eight months. Gabriel Martinelli is not number 9. They've tried to make him number 9 for a year and a half now. <laughs> and I don't think they necessarily need to add to that with Emmanuel Dennis, even though I think Emmanuel Dennis is a good player. Well, I mean, there's one name that came to my mind, but I don't think there's any real possibility of it happening. And that's uh, okay. Neil Malfoy. Okay. Yeah, Neil Mopay is not happening. Neil Mopay is also not that good. 
Yeah, but I mean, yes, if, if you want to go full galaxy brain here, let's bring boyhood Arsenal fan Harry Kane to Arsenal. <laughs> Yo, let's, let's bring Harry Kane. The let's world go, would burn down if that happened. <laughs> it would be Saul Campbell times a million. That would be so funny. No, I guess my point, already not my point, but what I'm trying to sort of get at is I think Arsenal can't bring in a world class forward. I don't think it's, they have it in them to, to sort of attract that kind of talent anymore. They need to rework their transfer strategy and bring in up-and-coming gems. Um, See, I don't think that's like... necessarily fully true. Why? Because I think Arsenal are going to be playing European football next year. And I think Arsenal are trending up. That's upward. a very bold statement. And Arsenal are... All they have to do is finish in the top seven places. There are a lot of bad teams in the Premier League this season. Finishing in the top seven for them is not that difficult. And I think they're a team that's trending upward. They're a team that's going to have a whole lot more money to not spend next summer when the TV money comes in. Because we all know how how the Cronkies love not spending money. Um, I think they're they're at least a more attractive prospect than they were six months ago. And while I don't think they can attract a world-class striker, Erling Holland's not going to go play for Arsenal. I think they can get maybe one or two steps down from a world-class striker. A player like Alexander Isaac who's not necessarily an up-and-coming gem because he's proved himself over multiple seasons. He's become one of the best forwards in La Liga, but he's not quite a world-class player yet. Yeah. I think that's fair. I think that's that's, that's, that's fair statement to make if that's a gift. All right. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about Arsenal and Manchester United? That is all I can think of. Very good because we still have a bit of time to talk about your favorite club, Everton. Oh, damn. What what <laughs> issues uh, what issues do you think they might face um, given the sort of dropping given, by given, uh, given, you know wh- what what happened at the derby? What happened during the derby? We got shot on. That's what happened. <laughs> no, yeah, well, yeah, we I all mean, that. It's a miracle we freaking scored. <laughs> That's a positive. That's very much clutching the straws. We should have lost seven. Liverpool should have scored two goals in the first five minutes, and that was the point. I was working in an office, so I couldn't watch the full 90 minutes of the game. And uh, it started during my lunch break, and I decided, screw it, I'm going to turn the game on. And within the first five minutes, Liverpool should have scored two goals. And then the ninth minute, Jordan Henderson scored. And it was after Jordan Henderson's goal, I decided, yeah, I'm not watching this. <laughs> and turned it <laughs> off and enjoyed my lunch Yo, break in peace. I think but, Liverpool scored two goals by the 23rd minute and people started leaving the game, bro. Oh, yeah, people were so fucking... Oh, my goodness. The, the crowd at Goodison was so toxic. Completely understandable. <laughs> but it, it, I mean, they were chanting, sack the board. There was a banner really? that said, you know, we demand Neil Nassiti's moment. Everton's um, saying nothing but the best is optimal. And below it, it said, you need to start demanding that of yourselves too, or something like that. There were like verbal confrontations between fans and um, the two attendees from the board at the game, which was Bill Kenwright, the club's chairman, and Marcel Brands, the club's sporting director. Farah Mashiri, the club's owner, was not in attendance. Probably thankful for him. And he's probably not going to the Arsenal game on Sunday because of what happened at the Merseyside Derby. And there's already walkouts planned for the Arsenal game. There's general significant unhappiness among the fans towards the club. There are rumors, a whole lot of um, emergency board meetings. Are they going to sack Rafa Benitez? Are they going to sack Marcel Brands? And 
in the meantime, Rafa Benitez decided to have a press conference this morning for some strange reason. And probably to prepare for the Arsenal game on Sunday. And gave some absolutely baffling answers when he was asked about their performance during the derby. That's when I think I texted you this morning, LMAO, something like LMAO, Rafa's press conference, I hate this club. He had said um, something like, I know what this city demands of its teams. We, something like we didn't necessarily play poorly against Liverpool. We ran more than them in every category. They just took advantage of our mistakes. And my immediate thought was, of course we ran more than them. They had 70% possession, you freaking idiot. They didn't need to run because we just let them have the ball. And <laughs> I just... I'm pulling my hair out on a weekly basis. How did Milan let this man win a European Cup? Yeah, no. Why did they let this man win a European <laughs> Cup? And... Everton are very much in the rock and the hard place sort of thing. Or at least from an Everton fan's perspective. I have no idea what the club thinks. I frankly don't care what the club thinks. They're very much in a situation where if they keep Rafa Benitez, this is only going to get worse. Because Rafa Benitez is not a good manager. Well, he's not a bad manager. He's a mediocre manager. <laughs> and everyone's going to say, oh, it's because of the injuries. because Dominic Coverloon isn't there. It's because Richarlison missed some games. because Abdi Decore missed some games. Richarlison and, Abdu, uh, Richarlison and Ducore both started against Brentford, and they were pretty bad. And even if Calvert-Lewin comes back, I have very little faith in this getting any better. And at that point, you're just looking at the manager like, you're just not good at your job. But if they sack Rafa Benitez, I have absolutely zero faith in them hiring someone good. So, this is where we're at. This is where we are at. I mean... If it's any consolation, right? Ole's looking for a new job. Um, you oh, can fuck. always hire. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, there already has been one name linked with the Everson job. That's it's not only just you know appeasing; it's actually kind of appealing, which definitely means in my mind they're not going to hire him. It's Casper Hillman, who's the Denmark manager. He was the guy who got Denmark oh. to the semi-final of the European Championship. He did a very good job at Midtjylland. It seems to be a very forward-thinking managerial hire as a young guy. He thinks very forward-thinking. He has the raising from Mitchell and is a very forward-thinking club. And he works well with the sporting director. Should Marcel Brands still be the sporting director after Sunday, which is not a guarantee. Yeah. And it seems like a good hire, which is why I'm 100% certain it's not going to happen. <laughs> because Everton do not do smart things anymore. But... Aside from that, I guess we're going to hear a lot about Frank Lampard. We're probably going to hear a lot about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Probably going to hear a lot about Steve Bruce. Probably going to hear a lot about Sam Allardyce. Because that's just where we are. Duncan Ferguson will take his uh, interim charge, certainly. And, I mean, that's even assuming they sack Rafa Benitez, which isn't guaranteed. There are a lot of rumors about, should we get pumped by Arsenal, which we probably will be, that he'll go after the Arsenal game. And I'm still not fully buying into that because, well, I mean, it mainly requires Fire Mashiri, who's the man who picked Rafa Benitez to be the manager, to admit that he was wrong. That it was 100% solely on him that he was wrong. And he, and he seems just like too proud of a person to admit that, at least at this stage. At least when the, the scapegoat of the injuries with Calvert-Lewin still being injured 
with, I mean, Yeremina, I think, is still injured, even though I think he could play against Arsenal. With that excuse still there, I think it might not happen, but I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I have no idea. Well, I mean, I guess only time will tell, my friend. And time will only tell if, uh, you know, Ralph will be a good uh, appointment at United. Time will only tell if Aubameyang is able to U-turn the season around. And if he does, it's only masking uh, perennial issues that Arsenal face long-term. Uh, <laughs> I do I mean, feel... Let's, let's, but... not, let's not call it perennial issues that Arsenal face long-term. Arsenal are going in a very good direction. They just need two players. Mate, and they're going to be pretty dang good. That's what everyone believes at this point, right? Arsenal are known, okay? They're perpetually known to disappoint, right? Don't keep your hopes high up. <laughs> and a lot of but I mean, like, objectively okay. speaking, they're going in a good direction. Okay, they are. I mean, yeah, they are. I mean, this, is, this is coming from a fan of a club that is not going in a good direction. <laughs> it's very interesting <laughs> that... Um, we're going into a game in December against Arsenal when the last the last immediate game in December against Arsenal I can remember was the last game of Duncan Ferguson's interim before Carl Ancelotti was hired and the last game of Freddie Lindbergh's interim before Mikel Arteta was hired and sort of oh, the wow. directions at which both of those clubs went after that point is just staggering fair fair but I mean, to be honest, right? It, yeah, sure, it's going in a good direction, and it's sitting what fifth in the table, right, Arsenal. But I think we also have to remember that the point difference between like what third and seventh or eighth or ninth—I can't recall—is um, narrow, very narrow, like ridiculously narrow. There's no mid-table essentially. We've sort of established that, but I'm starting to realize why. What do you mean by that? Each week, sort yeah, of, uh, the, the mid. Well, there is technically a mid table. It's it's just a line. It is a line that differentiates the teams that can challenge for Europe and the teams that are fighting relegation. And that line is currently sitting around tenth place. Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. I mean, yeah, you're right. It, it is very early in the season. Arsenal still have a negative goal difference, which is hilarious to me. Look at how many teams in this league have a negative goal difference. My goodness. United at zero, bro. That's just, bro. United are back at zero after the Arsenal game. Yeah, I know. But, but one, I just realized. I mean, Arsenal are in a good position now. It's obviously very early in the season. We have, we've only played 14 games. A lot of these teams have only played 14 games. So, yeah. passing judgments at this point might be a little bit irresponsible. But it's you, you can objectively say they're getting better under Arteta. And there is a direction there. It's just a question of are they going to continue going in that direction or will the Cronkies creed sort of grab them like a hook and drag them under? Which admittedly is very possible. Potentially, potentially. That's a, that's a possibility that we have to uh, contend with. I say we, I mean Arsenal fans, uh, specifically my father. But yeah, let's, uh, <laughs> let's hope in, in their interest and in the interest of football in general that Arsenal do well. <laughs>